Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as usual. Darcy, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm hanging in there. I'm doing my very best to survive one more week in the cold weather before we go to Florida. Ooh, Florida's going to be nice. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm just, I'm over. It, although, it's starting to warm up. Like, the river finally unthawed, or thawed. Oh, oh, nice. Um, so now it's flowing again. The first time in three or four months. Looked out there today, and all the ice was gone. It was hey. kind of wild. Yeah. Um, interesting cases for the day. Here's a good one. Coworker notices fake baby bump and unravels woman's scheme getting unwarranted maternity leave, authorities mm. say. Have you ever heard of this? No. So evidently a former Georgia State employee now faces criminal charges after she allegedly faked multiple pregnancies for paid time off. Multiple? Multiple. Robin Folsom, 43, of Atlanta, was indicted on February 10th on three counts of false statements and one count of identity fraud. Folsom is a former employee of the Georgia Vocational Rehabilitation Agency where she allegedly abused the use of family medical leave under false pretenses. She allegedly told the agency's human resources at the former job where she supervised the agency's marketing and media communications in late 2020 that she was pregnant. In May of 2021, the the department got an email from a person who claimed to be the baby's father announcing a birth. In turn, the agency approved seven weeks of paid leave for Folsom. Okay. However, one of Folsom's co-workers noticed that something seemed off and they blew the whistle, notifying the office of the inspector general. In March of 2021, a co-worker observed the lower portion of Folsom's stomach come away from her body and believed that she was wearing a fake pregnant stomach. In addition, Folsom allegedly sent pictures of her new baby to various employees where she worked. However, the pictures appeared to be inconsistent and depicted children with varying skin tones. Uh. A later review of her medical and insurance records found no sign that she had ever had a child. She had earlier reported the birth of a child in July 2020 and had also claimed she was pregnant in August 2021. She resigned in October 2021, not long after being interviewed by state investigators. At her role of Director of Internal Affairs at GVRA, she made about $100,000 a year. It's not clear if she has an attorney. She faces up to 10 years behind bars for identity fraud and for up to five years in prison for each charge of making false statements. Jeez. All state employees, and especially those that communicate with the media and general public on behalf of their agency, should be held to the highest standards of integrity and honesty, said the state inspector general. OIG will continue to hold state employees accountable if they choose to deceive their superiors and receive undeserved compensation. Okay, this is a wild case. Number one, um, because wow, to get away with this not once but twice. Yeah, and you know the fake stomach—that's just crazy. Like that's so much effort to like. That's just so much effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how do they explain it when they never have a baby? You know, and there's yeah. no baby in pictures, and I don't know. That just seems wild that somebody would think of something like that. And she yeah. had a hefty job, $100,000 a year? Yeah, seriously. I know that the benefits that I have offer time off for adoption, for any any kind of maternity and paternity leave. Yeah. You don't have to actually physically have the baby to get that time. Yeah. And they also help pay for all the stuff that's involved with it. Oh, that's nice. There's a lot of insurance companies that don't pay for that, too. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. So. Interesting case. Um, 
twice. I get yeah. once, but like I think you're going to the one. I don't one, get one once. too many times. <laughs> like it's that it's that it's those kind of situations that ruin it for the people that actually need these benefits. Yeah. Because, like, people are just going to sit, you go, like, use this woman and be like, well, see, people are taking the time they don't even need. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you need that time to take care of a family member instead, Mm -hmm. I think you should be allowed to. Yeah. I think there should be, like, some ground rules to be able to take that time. Yeah. But if you never have kids, I think that if you need to take that time for some other reason that's deeply important and you need to take it, you should be able to. Right. have it paid. But, I mean, that's just me. Yeah. Um, Next article. This one, I just, wild. It didn't have to end this way. Family of Penn State student who died in a fall left wondering what's next. Okay, get this. State college police wrapped up its investigation last week in the death of a Penn State student who fell 11 stories down a trash chute at her off-campus apartment. So I heard another story about this, about a girl dying, falling down a trash chute. But this is a trash chute. This is not it. This is a different story. This is a recent one. This just happened February 18th. So Justine Gross was a bright, top-notch woman destined to have a stellar career on Wall Street. She came from a home where we all embrace academics with a sense of growth, a sense of love, a sense of be all you can be, says her mother. She had every ounce of support to become everything she wanted. She was awesome. Her mother continues to have questions about the way state college police and the Center County Coroner's Office handled the investigation into her daughter's death and frustrations about Penn State's largely mum reaction. Justine, a former captain of the New Jersey High School cheerleading team and honors student, only applied to Penn State. Mm -hmm. She flirted with the idea of sending an application to UCLA, but opted to come to Happy Valley because it felt like home. Mm -hmm. The university's We Are mantra and revered football team was the perfect combination, her mother said. That union, she added, meant everything to Justine. She was looking forward to participating in in THON, the 46-hour dance marathon that's raised tens of millions of dollars to fight pediatric cancer, that was stated that was slated to begin Friday evening. The 19-year-old sophomore was in the University College of Liberal Arts when she plunged down a trash chute at Beaver Jesus. Terrace. She died in November of blunt force trauma, and her death was ruled accidental. Neither the borough police department nor the county coroner's office gathered any evidence that her death was criminal in nature. The group had a nearly hour-long teleconference Wednesday with Gross's parents to wade through their daughter's autopsy. The results showed THC, the compound that gives marijuana its high, and an elevated level of alcohol in her liver tissue at the time of her death. Okay, so she was a college student. Yes. Justine's final hours were captured on surveillance video from inside the apartment building at 456 East Beaver Avenue. She left her apartment on the 10th floor to visit a man at his apartment on the 7th floor, where he offered her a blunt, her mother said, which is just like a joint. I think, yeah. She left about 40 minutes later, walking unsteadily. She looked frantic, like she was looking for help, her mother says. Video later showed Justine barefoot and alone on the 11th floor, rushing into the room with the trash chute. She wasn't seen on video again. Her body was found 27 hours later at the Center County Recycling and Refuge Authority Transfer Station. No charges were filed in her death. Her mother declined to say if the family is planning to pursue a lawsuit. Their only immediate plans are to process the last three months, which she described as dreadful and heart-wrenching. 
I wake up with a knot in the center of my core. It's like a terrible pain that just will not go away. Every day it aches at you, she said. It's just a big heartache. What in it's the something world? You are just trying to understand why. It didn't have to end this way. It didn't need to be this way. I mean, wow. Unbelievable. So and like, this is just, she was a gorgeous young woman. Like, so much promise. Just intelligent. She had a reaction to the marijuana and alcohol com combined. I don't know. This just seems so bizarre to me. Yeah. There's no foul play. She went into the room willingly and jumped down a trash chute. It just well, seems so wild. And they also said she had alcohol in her liver tissue, so not in her blood alcohol. So she wasn't Tell even necessarily... Us what's the difference? Well, so it, that would mean it's, be, it's been metabolized by your liver. So like instead of being currently in your system, at least that's what I'm picking up from this... If it were in her blood alcohol, that would be mean she would be, she is drinking that night right before this happened. But being in her liver tissue means that it's already like out of her blood and being metabolized by her liver. So like she probably was not even drinking that day and was drinking the days before in the days yeah, before. So she you don't wasn't know how drunk. long she laid at the bottom of the trash chute. Maybe she wasn't immediately dead. Maybe she lived for quite a while longer and that was enough time to metastasize the alcohol. Yeah, may, I mean maybe. I mean, it's I just bizarre. Well, you said they found her body 24, 27 hours later? Something like that. So I'm not, I don't, I think it would still be in her bodily fluids at that, but I don't, I don't know for sure, but. But why would anybody jump down a trash suit? I just don't understand that. I don't either. It's sad. I mean, unless she was psychotic or had some kind of a break with, you know, the, and I've heard of things like THC causing mental issues severe mental issues especially things like the spice and the artificial thc yeah so like artificial thc or like thc that was laced with something i could understand but they didn't say they found anything other than just regular thc in her i just system. can't see her doing something like that unless she had some kind of an allergic reaction and panicked and just seems so wild very very tragic and sad story um Speaking of tragic and sad stories, um, I'm going to talk today's main cases about Susan Powell. Okay. Mm. So, and this is a case that's kind of garnered some additional attention lately because of some recent developments, but it's a case that I've wanted to cover in a while because it's from an area that I'm very familiar with. But Susan Powell was born Susan Marie Cox, October 16th, 1981. She was born in... Almogordo, New Mexico. Okay. Josh Powell was born January 20th, 1976 in Puyallup, Washington. So Puyallup, Washington is a town that's about, it's southeast of Tacoma, Washington, which is like one of the major cities in the state of Washington. My grandmother owned a home in a town called Ording, which is not far from Puyallup. And so I spent many, many, many years of my childhood in Puyallup, in and around the areas surrounding Puyallup and South Hill, where some of this story takes place. So mm -hmm. I'm very familiar. It's A lot of it is rural, and kind of there are a lot of open roads and a lot of kind of, there's not a lot of um, buildings and there's not a high population density in that area either. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a very pretty area to be in, but just somewhat rural, not like the city of Tacoma itself. Um, but both families came from religious backgrounds with the LDS Church, which mm -hmm. is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm pretty familiar with this as well. A lot of the students that I went to school with were a part of this community. It seems to be very heavily kind of um, concentrated.
concentrated in areas of Washington State. And I don't know if you experience anything with this religious community at all, but we actually had um, like quite a few Mormon um, kids at my high school too. I don't know if like I don't know if there's a big Mormon community around here, but yeah, yeah, it was actually like we had a, quite a big Mormon community of high school students. But for the most part, it's kind of conservative and and usually a very yeah. stable kind of a background for the most part. Um, and Susan had that sort of a stable background with her family, but Josh's was not quite so stable. It was punctuated by some really kind of scary moments of instability and divorce, primarily because of his father. Stephen Powell was not into standing by the biblical principles that the LDS espoused that community really was a part of. It was said that um, Stephen showed pornography to his sons at young ages, Oh. And he had no boundaries or desire to enforce boundaries with his children. So it was like, That's you know, do whatever you want. Look at some porn with me. It's just super creepy. Not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, as a result, Josh started doing wild and kind of crazy things as a teenager, like killing gerbils and threatening his mother with a butcher knife at one point. Whoa. He's also have said, he is also said to have tried to kill himself on at least one occasion. So he's got raging hormones, he's got emotions, he doesn't know how to deal with things, he's got that, you know, emotional instability, and, you know, what is the other thing that we always talk about? The um, lack of impulse control. Mm -hmm. And no structure. Right, and it's just creating really negative turns in his life. So fast forward to 1998, it's the University of Washington, where I went to school. Mm -hmm. Um, Josh was there around the time that I was there, which is super creepy. But he was living in Seattle, trying to get a college degree in business, and he took up a relationship with a woman named Catherine Everett. They met at an LDS church function, which in the LDS church, meeting at a church function is really one of the only acceptable ways to meet a good Christian, Mm -hmm. promising young person to marry. Well, and it's still, I mean, even like outside of LDS, like in religious like for religious people like meeting at their whatever place of worship is a very common way to meet like people that have your same core values yeah but it's important to note that even though josh's father wasn't a fan of the lds family and the church in general josh still remained part of the church okay but i think it was one of those type of situations where he kind of picked and chose what he thought was important and what he would adhere to Mm -hmm. um because josh moved in with Catherine, which Mm. It's not something I believe is like a biblical principle, is aligned with biblical principles of the well, LDS church. not only biblical, but like also Book of Mormon. Yeah. Yeah. You're not supposed to live with someone and you're not supposed to sleep with someone until you get married. There's a whole yeah. list of rules that they adhere to, and I don't think he was adhering to that part of it. But he was really possessive, and he had lots of limitations that he would be putting on her constantly, like telling her when she could or couldn't see her family and Mm -hmm. places she was allowed to go. And after dealing with this for a good period of time, she went to see a friend in Utah and broke up with Josh over the phone, which it's got to be pretty hardcore when you break up with someone over the phone. Either that, like, yeah, I mean, in this situation, it's clearly a very hardcore situation because they had been together for a while, but like... They're living together, and she's yeah. breaking up with them over the phone. Yeah, like that means it's like she, there's she's something. reached her breaking point, yeah. right? Then Josh meets Susan Cox at a dinner party in Tacoma, not long after the breakup with his first serious girlfriend. The two were attending a class on the institution of religion held by the LDS Church, which sounds super romantic, right? Mm. Well, no? 
The two immediately started a relationship and ended up marrying in 2001 at the okay. Portland, Oregon Temple. And again, for the LDS church, you have to get married in the temple. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, very important. So they had to have done something right to be able to get married in the temple because mm-hmm. there are certain restrictions that they place upon couples who want to get married in the temple. So it's a whole thing. The couple worked various jobs. Susan at Wells Fargo, um, it's also important to note she was a trained cosmetologist, but presumably she chose to work at the bank to have a stable and steady income because Josh Powell couldn't seem to keep a job. Okay. So he has a degree in business, but it seems like he's just a little bit strange, a little bit off, and maybe just not so much into people telling him what to do and Mm -hmm. ends up quitting a lot of jobs or getting fired. So... Josh and Susan eventually moved to Utah and have two sons, one in 2005, Charlie, and one in 2007 named Brayden. Okay. It's important to note, though, that before they moved to Utah, Susan and Josh lived with Stephen Powell, who's Josh's weird dad, Yeah. at his house in South Hill, Washington. Okay. So now, where is, is that? southeast of Tacoma. It's about okay. eight or nine miles from Ording, the town that my grandmother had a home in okay pretty close to Tacoma too but it's a lot more rural than Tacoma Tacoma is like the city yeah and this is like more a suburb a deep deep country type of a suburb outside of Tacoma gotcha it's very rural very remote um evidently during this short time Stephen the Creeper started becoming obsessed with Susan he was said to have followed her around the house with a video camera on numerous occasions and put mirrors to spy on her in the bathroom. He stole her underwear. He read her mm. diaries and he posted love songs about her online under other names. So Absolutely not. Nope. Just mm, above any bounds of anything yeah. normal and just straight into the creep zone. Yeah. Um, this isn't like, hey, your dad's being kind of weird. It's like, no, your dad is legitimately being creepy and we need to be out of the situation by 2003 crazy steven tells susan about his creepy feelings and the whole thing was actually accidentally caught on steven's ever running video camera and susan basically tells him and you can listen to this online if you look it up um you can listen to the actual there's a lot of recordings from this case Mm -hmm. but she basically tells him she has no idea what he's talking about and she's like no this is creepy i'm not interested i don't reciprocate any of your feelings no so he's like approaching it as if they have some sort of reciprocal Secret. relationship. Yeah. And yeah. she's like, no, this is all in your head. Okay. Yeah, basically. He's mentally ill. And she's basically telling him, you're disgusting. Okay. Um, but shortly after that, the family moves to Utah, presumably so Susan can get away from her stalker father. Yeah. Right. All the while, Susan's emails, journals, etc., were filled with entries about how unhappy she was becoming with Josh. Okay. And Josh doesn't want to attend the church with the family. He refuses to go to church on Sundays with them or to be involved in any parts of it anymore and sort of distances himself from the family. And he also refuses to stop talking to his dad or have a relationship with his dad despite the creepy stalker moves and the controlling behavior. He's got excessive spending. He's got a lot of stuff going on. Despite the fact that Susan is the only breadwinner or the only significant breadwinner in the family, he's spending a lot of money on things that they don't really need, like computer equipment, video games, just random stuff. Like, he has control of the money. Mm-hmm. She's making most of the money, but he, ha- he holds the purse strings and spends it yeah. on what he wants to spend it on. In 2007, Josh files for bankruptcy. 
and he said that they had debt of over $200,000, which, wow, um, I wonder, clearly I don't think they owned a house, so to have $200,000 in consumer debt, that's major. Yeah. Um, and I did bankruptcy law for a few years, so I know what it takes to get to that range. But friends and family indicated that Josh purchased a lot of computer equipment and other unnecessary items, while the couple only had one car and got deeper and deeper into debt. So they did not, like, the ha they had no house payment. That's not part of their debt? Uh, no. I don't okay. believe so. Wow. I think they were renting. Okay. It was also important. Wait, nope. I take that back. Because I recall reading in a story later that he was talking about renting the house out when he left later. So I do believe that they did. But they, and that was probably a very, I don't think they count that as far as the $200,000 oh, okay. worth of debt. Because you get something called, I think it's called a homestead exemption, where you can basically not include your home. So you get to keep your home. And, and it sounds as though they had over $200,000 worth of consumer debt, which would just be like credit cards and other oh, bills wow. besides okay. the house. Um, in any case, um, friends encouraged Susan to get help. And at some point, either a friend or a legal counsel advised her to record a video to document their assets. So she did so in July 2008. That so, I do remember seeing. And, you know, she's very clear, I think, throughout this time and in her journals. And she had a secret will or something like that as well, where she's basically saying, if something happens to me, it's not an accident. Yeah. This guy did it. And fast forward to December 6th, 2009. The Powell family, minus Joshua, goes to church services in the morning. Later that day, one of the neighbors stops by and leaves around 5 p.m. Okay. That is the last time that Susan Powell was ever seen by another person in, around, or near her home. Okay. December 7th, 2009, the kids don't show up to daycare on Monday. This prompts Josh's mother and sister to stop by the Powell house and kind of look around, and they find it empty. And they convince police to break in, fearing that maybe the family has been the victim of carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh-huh. And I think there was something like they had to promise the police that they would pay for the broken window, and the police broke in after that. But mm -hmm. they find no sign of the family when they get in there. Okay. But they do find two large fans blowing at a wet spot on the couch. Uh, they also find Susan's wallet and purse and all those kind of things that she would typically have as she was going to be leaving the house. Okay. Susan's cell phone was later found in the family's only car, a Chrysler Town & Country minivan. So okay. we have a pretty good indication at this point that Susan did not leave that house willingly because most women are not going to leave without their cell phone, their purse, right. etc. Right. Then Monday, December 7th, around 5 p.m., Joshua Powell mysteriously gets back home with Braden and Charlie. Okay. Of course, Josh so claims... Just Josh and the boys. Yeah. No yeah. Susan. And of course, Josh claims he has no idea where Susan is. He says that he went on an impromptu camping trip with the, with the toddlers in Simpson Springs, leaving Susan sleeping on the couch a little after midnight. I don't think that's a thing. Yeah. Number one, you don't take toddlers on a camping trip in the middle of the night during a blizzard. There was a blizzard that night. Yeah. Like blizzard conditions. And he had to go to work the next day, evidently. He had an, a job. And he had not called in sick. So they were like, this is just not checking out. Yeah, and, like, if you were doing that, wouldn't you also make arrangements, like, for your kids? Like, at least let the school know they're not going to be there? Mm-hmm. So, of course, the police check out this alleged site where Joshua says he was camping, and they don't find any sign of a campsite. 
They also think it's really weird that he took these two really small kids on a camping trip during a blizzard when he had to be at work the next day. And he claims that he thought it was Sunday rather than Monday the next day. Whoops. Nope, that's not a thing that a professional adult does. <laughs> right. Like, everybody has a thing where they're like, oh, man, I thought today was Wednesday all day. But it's not like you just don't think it's a school day or a, a work day when it's... Yeah. Yeah, like, it's that's not, not, that's not plausible. a plausible. The police then dig a little deeper. And on December 9th, 2009, they find Susan's blood or traces of her blood on the floor. And mm. they find that there were some life insurance policies in the amount of $1.5 million. Okay. And they find a letter from Susan indicating she feared for her life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, police did not test the blood until 2013 when it was determined to be Susan's and that of an unknown male. Wait, why? Uh, I don't know. In 2012, police release additional information calling Joshua Powell's motives into question, and he is at that point a significant person of interest. Okay. For instance... He had liquidated her retirement accounts, took their kids out of daycare, canceled all of Susan's regular doctor appointments, and a bunch of other creepy things. And so, like, she's just not home. Like, we don't no. know anything. So, co-workers indicated previous conversations with Josh about hiding bodies in abandoned mine shafts in the western Utah desert. Hmm. So, this is not stacking up to look that good for Josh. Yeah. And interestingly enough, on another side note, it est it's estimated that as of 2018, there are around 17,000 abandoned mines in Utah. Holy moly. So legislation was passed in 1975, making it illegal to abandon a mine, but the project um, that is currently underway is set to seal off access and openings to any open mines in Utah, clean up the waste, etc. Um but clearly, Utah has a lot of open and accessible yeah. abandoned mines. That's a lot of freaking mines. That is so much. Okay. That's horrifying. So he's having conversations with people like, oh, hey, this, if I, you know, the kind of O.J. Simpson thing, if I killed somebody, this would yeah. be how I would do it. I mean, look, let's be honest. Like, people that are into true crime have had that conversation. Yes. But it doesn't look great when somebody in your life then goes missing shortly yeah. after. Like, yeah. that's, that's the thing. And police get the older Powell son, Charlie, into an investigation, mm -hmm. or excuse me, into an interrogation room with a counselor, I presume. And, and he's what, like nine, you said? No, he's, I think he's like four. Oh, geez. Okay, well, he, he was born in 2005 and 2007, oh. so he's like four. Okay. He's real little. But, you know, they get a counselor in there with them, and he surprisingly indicates that mama came with them and didn't return. And you can actually hear all these recordings online. It's just, it's so sad. Shortly after indicating his mom was gone, Charlie says that he can't talk about it anymore and basically shuts the investigators down. And they believe he was coached by someone, probably right. his dad. Right. And one of Charlie's teachers said that he claimed his mother was dead and that his her body was in the trunk of the car. Whoa. Which just, I mean, kids don't make stuff like that up. No. Not, no. They don't so, come up with that out of thin air. Like, they have a basis for saying that. Absolutely not. Right. But with this information, police subpoenaed all the footage and interviews that Joshua had done with television stations around that time. Oh, and yeah. And they start combing through it with a fine-tooth comb. But by December 14th of 2009, Joshua lawyers up, becoming more and more uncooperative. And he takes his two sons to stay with his dad near Puyallup, Washington again, mm -hmm. the creeper. 
So even though he's a person of interest, he returns to Utah January 6, 2010, packs up the family's things, and moves back to Washington State, sharing a home with his dad. Mm -hmm. Some of the reports say the house was shared with the, fam with the father, two brothers, a and a sister. Oh. And Josh says he lost his job in Utah. Surprise, surprise. We all know he's not stable with jobs anyway. Right. Um, then Josh publishes SusanPowell.org. And it's got a bunch of anonymous entries claiming Josh was being smeared by Susan's family, his own sister, and the LDS church. Which, why? Yeah. Why would they do that? Yeah. Uh, the website has all kinds of unfounded allegations and theories, including one that Susan vanished with a journalist that disappeared around the same time, and that she had run off to Brazil, that she was mentally ill. Like, there's all kinds of really just blasphemous, terrible things about this woman that have no, absolutely no founded truth. This no is like evidence the Jennifer Doolittle case. Exactly. Yeah. None of these theories were proven in any kind with any kind of credible evidence. And the website was ultimately believed to be written by both Josh and his dad, which no, no surprise kidding. there, right? Yeah. Then police get a tip from a family friend and sees a computer in 2010 that has nearly 5,000 images of Susan Powell taken without her knowledge or permission. Oh, my God. So Stephen, you know, Josh's dad, was taking a bunch of pictures of Susan and videos and things like that without her knowledge. Just really creepy stuff. Just probably for his own personal spank bank. A lot of close-ups and body parts. And this is not necessarily like inappropriate pictures, but no, just pictures that she doesn't... Close-ups and body parts and all kinds of oh. other stuff. Like he was using God. mirrors and just doing super creepy stuff. Oh, Jesus. Police also discovered that Josh's brother Michael sold a car to a wrecking yard in Oregon. They tracked the car down and they brought sniffer dogs in who alerted to a decomposing body in the trunk. Mm. However... DNA tests could not prove conclusively that it was Susan's body in that trunk. But, you know, how many other dead bodies do you have in your trunk, yeah. right? Just, yeah. It's like the Madeline McCain case, really? Yeah. Okay, they found decomposition. How many other dead people do you think were in that closet or that yeah. trunk or whatever? September 14th, 2011, police find a possible grave at Topaz Mountain in a spot where Joshua was known to frequent. But a closer search yielded no signs of a relevant grave, or excuse me, no signs of a recent grave. Even though they say a sniffer dog led them there, they couldn't find a grave in that spot. Okay. Police then raid Stephen Powell's home, and this is the same home that he shared with his kids, and this was in 2011, presumably. Is this the home in Utah? or Washington State. This is Washington, Stephen Powell okay. lives in Washington State, South Hill, Washington. Okay. They were looking. Oh, Stephen Powell. Yes. Sorry. Presumably, okay. they were looking for Susan's journals. They'd gotten some kind of a tip that she had a lot of journals. Okay. Stephen and Josh spoke out then about the fact that there was this supposed secret love affair going on between Stephen and Susan. Jeez. There's some indications that even Josh agrees that they were falling in love, or there was some kind of relationship there that wasn't there. Um, no. And they're also saying that Susan's journals show Susan's journals indicated this as well as her mental instabilities, and this was what led her to run away with another man. Got it. So it's her fault. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, though, an injunction is issued preventing Josh or Stephen from publishing any more of Susan's journals, and they're ordered to return any of the journals that were remaining or destroy anything that they'd already published. Okay. So these guys are out there publishing portions of this poor woman's journal to try to prove that she's mentally unstable. It's just disgusting. 
Then September 22nd, 2011, police find a bunch of child pornography on Stephen's computer. <laughs> there were also things basically showing that he was doing some voyeurism, spying on people without their knowledge. Mm. So Steve, Susan wasn't the only female that Stephen had taped without her permission. Okay. And they arrest him. Susan's family then immediately files for custody of the two boys, and they're granted that temporary custody for obvious reasons, right? Yeah. In order to get his kids back, Josh moves out of his father's house and gets another place in an attempt to get them returned as soon as he can, because he, for some reason, hates the Cox family and thinks they're out to get him. He's very paranoid. In the meantime, various members of Josh's family, well, some believe him and some don't. Mm -hmm. It's kind of 50-50. But by the end of 2011, Washington State Courts order Josh Powell into evaluations. Okay. They determined that he was a good parent, had steady employment, which seems wild considering mm-hmm. how many jobs he'd probably been through in that time, the last 10 years before that. But they said he had no criminal record and no domestic violence. I think it takes, like, a lot for you to lose custody. Like, a lot. It does. Especially yeah. if you're the primary parent. Yeah. And no one else is left. But they also found that they had significant concerns because he had a failure to admit his own shortcomings. He had overbearing behavior, defensiveness, paranoid behavior, underlying narcissistic traits, and a whole bunch of other things that prevented the court from allowing him to have full-time custody of his kids after that. Hmm. Instead, they granted him weekly visits with a social worker supervising. Mm -hmm. But this was not to last long. By January 2012, police find over 400 pictures simulating child pornography, incest, and bestiality on a computer seized from the Powell home. Now, it's interesting to note a couple of things here. I do not believe these images were put on the computer by Josh. I believe that was proven later. Mm -hmm. I believe that they indicated, the police indicated that these images were on the computer when Susan purchased it from another member of the LDS church. Susan purchased this computer. Okay. Okay, the images were also hand-drawn, cartoon, 3D-ish kind of thing, so they were not illegal, but they were disturbing nonetheless, right? Okay. Um, But somehow, either the police or the courts sort of made it look as though these were Josh's, and so they ordered more evaluations for him as well as a polygraph test. Okay. As all of this is going on, the Powell family claims Susan's family is abusing the boys and the investigations have been mishandled by the police. So they're doing everything they can to try to defend themselves by mm-hmm. reaching out and lashing out in any way they can. Um, even though this was going on, they did not recommend any changes to the visitation schedule with the boys. They were still allowed okay. to see their father, per usual. Unsupervised. No, it's supervised. They're still supervised. It's supervised. They have a social okay. worker supervising all the visits. Okay. Then February 5th, 2012, Elizabeth Griffin Hall, the social worker assigned to this case, drops the boys off at Josh's house for a regularly scheduled visit. Yeah. So Josh grabs the two boys and shuts the door in the social worker's face. Yeah. The social worker immediately calls 911 and the house explodes shortly thereafter, killing Josh and his two sons. Mm-hmm. It was ruled a murder-suicide. Mm-hmm. Josh's father in jail at the time didn't seem upset. He was only angry at the authorities that notified him of his son's death. When questioned about Susan, he pleaded the fifth. In the meantime, Stephen Powell was convicted of voyeurism and the child pornography cases in May 2012. The explosion was deliberate and planned. 
The cause of death was officially carbon monoxide for all three of the people that were in the house, but they did say that there were noticeable chopping injuries to the two boys around the head and neck. Oh, my God. In addition, Josh Josh was found with a hatchet. Whoa. Okay. So he had clearly made these injuries. Jesus. To the boys. Hit them about the head and the neck with a hatchet. God. Two five-gallon cans of gas were found, as well as gas all around the house, indicating Josh's horrific plan to end his own life after killing his own two boys. Evidently, he'd sent out multiple emails saying goodbye and instructing others how to shut off utilities, how to show where the money was that he had left, and to donate the boys' things to charity. The two boys were buried at Woodbine Cemetery along with the memorial for their mother, and Josh was cremated. We don't know where his ashes mm-hmm. went. Presumably his family took those somewhere. Um, that's not, that isn't all, though. His brother, Michael... Thought to have been somehow involved in this. They say he is was he the one that sold the car. This. Okay. He's the one that sold the car. He <gasps> killed himself February 11th, 2013, about a year after Whoa. Josh killed himself. He jumped from the roof of a parking garage. Whoa. Yeah. It's largely believed by authorities that Michael and Josh were accomplices in killing Susan. I don't think there's anybody that questions that at this point. May 21st, 2013, police officially closed the investigation into Susan's disappearance. June 2013, Josh's sister Jennifer wrote a book about her wacky family. Um, She says she intended to help other people suffering from abuse. March 2015, Chuck Cox, Susan's dad, uh, wins a court battle gaining control of Susan's estate. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that is critical is because there was an insurance policy. Mm -hmm. The 1.5 million, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Cox family also sued the Washington Department of Health Services, DSHS, and the social workers, claiming that the parental rights shouldn't have taken priority over the boys' safety. Yeah. The case ended with a ruling that DHS wasn't negligent, but then that was reversed and the case went to trial, and the family got about $98 million. I think this was actually reduced later mm-hmm. down to like $20 million, they said. And, and that often happens in cases yeah. like this because they don't want to bankrupt the state. But it was still ruled in their favor. Them, yes, it was in their favor. Legislation was also pushed forward for rules to restrict or block visitation rights for parents that are being investigated in murder cases. Yeah. Creepy Stephen Powell got out of jail July 11th, 2017 after serving seven years for child pornography and voyeurism. He passed away July 23rd, 2018, of natural causes in Tacoma, Washington. Good riddance to that creep. In 2012, excuse me, in early 2022, a cave was explored as part of a long effort to find Susan's remains. Yes. So this was the the one that recently we were talking about. Yeah. I sent you that like like a couple weeks ago. Yes. While exploring a mine shaft, the team found bones and clothing. So this was um, so part who, of a, it's part of a show on the Discovery Channel called the Diesel Brothers. Okay, so they were, but it wasn't related to looking for her. They were looking for her. Oh, but they filmed it as part of their show. They were exploring mine shafts in Utah as part of an episode where they were looking for her remains. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, so it just happened the two things coincided, right? And they were exploring a mine shaft, and they found the bones and clothing while they were down there. Right. Um, but 
They took about 11 days during the course of their show examining a 225-foot mine shaft in Utah. Mm -hmm. They thought it was near where Josh camped or was camping around the time of his wife's murder. Yeah. So, But ultimately, it was found that the bones were that of an animal. I was going to say, yeah. Not so a human. I saw in the article that I read about this, they had some pictures of the bones, and it was like they need to be tested or whatever. And... Um, I actually have taken a couple anthropology courses and like that is one of the things is like identifying if bones are a human or animal and like identifying what the bones are and like the bones are not in fragments for what they found um, yeah like it's pretty clearly um, some ribs because you yeah. can see the the way they're shaped and like the, their articulations where it would where it would um, um, articulate to the spine but yeah it's like if if it were a human rib, and there are animal bones that look similar to human bones, but the, the size right. of them is so much bigger. Yeah. Like, these are big ribs. And so, like, it would be unusual for that to be a human female. So you looked at these bones and, and knew pretty much from the start they weren't human? I did. Well, I mean, I wasn't, like, 100% confident, but I, I said, I, I was, like, I would, I would be really surprised if these were actually... If, if I've identified them correctly as ribs, which I think I had, like, I would be surprised if those belonged to a human. Yeah. But, like, they still found clothes. So... Yes. That's all... I think that, that they're still DNA testing yeah. the clothes or still examining the clothes for any traces of DNA. But that's a tough one. Yeah. When you've got yeah, wear and tear and damage and, and whatnot. And just because the bones they found were not human does not mean that she couldn't have been dropped down that mine. Exactly. I mean, there's a reason the clothes are there. So what's, like, are they completely unrelated or is it something, is it a, is it a clue? Like, we don't, we don't know that yet. And that's still to be determined. Yeah. But, I mean, it's interesting, the development to come Very along. Very interesting. I mean, and there 17,000 mines in Utah. That, like, and that's horrifying. I wonder how many are within that area that he was allegedly in around yeah. the time of her death. And, like, like you said, there's a lot of, about this case that has been recorded, either from, like, the weird Stevens video camera that Susan recorded yeah. herself, or her journals. But one of the most devastating things I've ever heard is that social worker's 911 call. Yeah. Oh, it's, my gosh. It's heartbreaking. It's so devastating can you imagine being that person and living with that for the rest of your I mean, life like, she's just frantic because she knows something is wrong she knows yeah and then she knows instinctively yeah josh was creepy yeah yeah and then it just ugh. just looking at pictures of him he looks creepy he awful. looks like he has like creepy thoughts in his creepy head and how could he not when he's raised by creepy yeah. Stephen powell such a ugh, such a terrible terrible story and, like, how could it not be anything but murder with all the, like, intersecting, weird, creepy things that happen? Oh, for sure. That? Yeah. I just wonder if the dad knew. Probably. He probably knew so at least something. You know what I mean? If he wasn't directly involved. But everyone that was involved in this case is gone, gone now. now. Yeah. I don't know. I hope they find her body. I do too. It just seems so sad that there's nowhere to lay her. And she was, she seemed like such a sweet kind of just innocent mm -hmm. and nice person like just you listen to the recordings that she made and just the, her talking and the, see the pictures of her just it's it's really sad yeah she fell in love with a person who clearly had some very dark things yeah. inside of him yeah very 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 sad but anyway is there anything else you want to add before we wrap this one up for the day nope i think i've heard at least 15 different podcasts yeah episodes about this 
it's about her in this case. Yeah. And, and some of them I've listened to more than once because yeah. I just found it so interesting, you know, especially the stuff with the dad, like, recording yes, her. Yes, that's so gross. And he's like, oh, she shaved her legs because she's trying to impress me. She waxed her legs because she's trying to impress me. And, like, no. Yeah. She waxed her legs because she doesn't want to be hairy. Because she has nothing to, to do with you. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, wow. She... And I guess I heard another story, too, about how there was one incident where... Because they had one car, right? Mm-hmm. Because he was spending money, like, willy-nilly, all crazy. And she was really the only one that was a steady breadwinner. And at times, they, she had to ride her bike to work. Oh, my god! it's Utah. Yeah. Like, along, there's no sidewalks where she was living, either. So she's riding this bike to work out in the middle of nowhere. It's just super dangerous, yeah. super scary, like, a very long distance. Because he was like, you're not using the car today. And she's like, well, I've got to get to work. And he was like, figure it out. Oh, God. I mean, can you imagine being with someone like that? Like, wow. Mm -hmm. And the thing was, she indicated to so many people that she was unhappy. And she wanted out. And she just didn't know how to do it. Clearly. Because she didn't get out. And she was an intelligent person. And, you know, she should have had the support of her community and her church. And it just doesn't seem like maybe that was a thing. I don't know. It's just, why wasn't she able to get out? I mean, it, it she said she was scared. It seems like she was very isolated from any kind of support group, and that that was a very intentional. Oh yeah, move by her husband. Which you know, one of the signs of that hardcore abuse mm-hmm. is isolating the person from their friends and family and yeah. support system. Yeah. But anyway. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. If you've got any notes on this case or comments about things you would potentially like us to cover, we're happy to cover off on that as well. Please rate, review, and subscribe. That's really important. It helps us kind of spike higher in ratings and, and maybe come up higher for people that are looking for certain topics. And um, Dose Darcy, what's our social media? Yeah, we are at the BFD Podcast on Instagram. So we will post some pictures about the case and um, any updates and all of that stuff there. And I have been pretty good about posting pictures lately. <laughs> yeah. I certainly hope, though, that, you know, as technology continues to improve and so forth, that eventually they'll find mm-hmm. this woman. I mean, they've got to. I mean, because there's only so many places he could have put her. Yeah. I mean... It's not infinite, right? Right. Even if it's 17,000, it's still limited, right? right? And I don't think it's 17,000. It would have to narrow it down to the number that she, that he, and the number in the area that he right. was at when yeah. she died, right? So yeah. that can't be more than a few hundred, I would think. I have no idea. But anyway, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.